From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks very much for listening. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and please do leave us a nice review. This week, as millions of students await to hear the outcome of their application to college, we're going to take a look at the state of American universities. With rising concern about free speech on campus and the growing dominance of progressive zealots in faculties and student common rooms, what can be done to tackle the intolerant hegemony of the left? It seems to be a feature of so much American higher education. What wider role should universities be playing in modern society? Are we harnessing sufficiently academic and scientific research to meet the nation's needs? How do our universities stay competitive in an environment of growing global competition? I'm going to be talking this week about these and other topics with my guest, the president of the University of Chicago, Paul Alivasatos. Professor Alivasatos is a distinguished scientist, a chemist who has done pioneering work in the development of nanomaterials, among many other fields. He became the 14th president of the University of Chicago in 2021, and he's vowed to maintain the university's reputation for free expression. We're glad to hear that. And of course, academic excellence. He is, as it happens, an alumnus of the university, having studied chemistry as an undergraduate. Before his current appointment, he served as provost at UC Berkeley. Must have been a somewhat different climate in every sense of the term. And Paul Alavasatos joins me now. Professor Alavasatos, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be with you. So you took over as president of the university, I think, just a, a year, year and a half ago, was it something? It's in, almost in, a year and a half Almost now, a year yes. and a half. Interestingly, you were also, you were an undergraduate at the University of Chicago. You've had many, many distinguished positions, a very distinguished scientist, also in administration roles, including at Cal Berkeley. Coming back to the university from your undergraduate years, how has it changed? What were the main impressions in your first year and a half about how the University of Chicago has evolved in the last 40 years? Well, first of all, it's just a joy for me to be back. And what changed my life was my undergraduate education, which at the time, built on core curriculum, emphasized how to know, not what to know. And that, I think, served me throughout my life in such a deep way. And as I return to the university, I see that ethos is still everywhere. But I also see a, a different piece, which is what I'm going to call a little bit an engaged University of Chicago, where we see, for example, that today we have molecular engineering. Mm. Years ago, we didn't have something like that at the University of Chicago. And I think that shows the university bringing its ability to use its cultural attributes, its style, if you like, commitment to free expression and so on, as a launching point also to help society to confront some of its biggest challenges. And I feel like that's a new day at the university, which is what brought me back. As, as universities evolve and society evolves, one of the key questions about universities is that balance between pure intellectual inquiry and the sort of the purity of that, and of course, the application of academic activity to the real world. Do you think that is a balance that at your university, at the University of Chicago, that is right now? Or are you looking to, as you say, to be, for the university to become more engaged, perhaps, as I say, more practical applications of academic research for the various challenges the world faces? I do think that some of the challenges that the world in our society and global societies face have a kind of change in character. And the role of science and engineering in concert with, let's say, economics, markets, public policy, they're playing a different role. Universities are playing a more 
pivotal role now that we have knowledge economies, mm. the positioning of universities as places where really new ideas are created just for their own sake, those then end up having impacts for society, I think almost in a qualitatively different way than in the past. And so the engagement of universities actually becomes more important for society. So, and as I said, you, you know, you're yeah. a scientist. Uh, Chicago yeah. is very famous, great reputation for scientific research economics. I studied economics and a lot of the economists I studied were associated with the University of Chicago, but also very broad ranging, great humanities studies too. A lot of people question now the role of disciplines in the humanities. How much value does society get out of the study of philosophy or even history or certain types of artistic endeavors? Is that something that concerns you? Do you feel the need to elevate the study of humanities, to reassert the importance of humanities? Or actually, as we've talked about, does the university need to move more towards practical applications? I don't see those as an either or. For example, we're thinking very hard about our programs in climate and energy. But I brought a book with me on some of my visits today to hand out, and it's a book by our philosophy professor, Jonathan Lear. And it's about how people often think about existential challenges over time and how that has changed and his thinking about that. And I feel like in some sense, that's a starting point. In my own life as a scientist, I mentioned how transformative my college education was. I actually still think about my classes that I took all those years ago in the humanities uh, that really led to me learning how to think in the deepest ways. I don't think that will ever go away. And for us, for example, as a university today, the core curriculum, which really starts with the humanities in the deepest way, is the essence of the foundation of our education. But at the same time, we know today that partnering with society to actually help find solutions is a very important role for universities. So I don't want to see them as an either or. I think we can do both. But what about the balance between teaching undergraduate and postgraduate teaching and, and research. Is that, again, is that something you think the university has right now, or do you think that balance needs to be redressed? Well, I'm astonished by the care that's given to the teaching at the university, how deep it is. I visited recently the faculty who are responsible for the core curriculum, which is really a foundation point. That's and still very much a part of the, the undergraduate education. Of it. And, and yeah, I yeah. think it's really foundational. And to see the faculty, how carefully they were thinking about how to constantly honor the history of the core, but also renew it, was really inspiring to me. At the same time, absolutely, we're creating entirely new research fields. I mean, in quantum information and in uh, biotech areas and so on. You know, there's completely new things happening. Or even in the field of economics, as you mentioned, you know, it's transforming into some sense a, an experimental field as well as one where there are foundational things. So all that's going on. But to some extent, the pursuit of these priorities must be driven in part by financing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. again, University of Chicago is one of the universities that's been extraordinarily successful in raising private funding. And that tends to go towards, well, you tell me, in other universities, certainly the ones that I'm familiar with, tends to be sort of directed firstly towards sort of scientific and sort of practical academic activity, and also perhaps towards research with a view to developing particular lines of research that can have particular benefit for, you know, again, whether it's a public-private partnership or even in the wider sense of companies helping to broadly fund universities. Again, are you happy with the way in which that financing works and the way in which that is driving a lot of your priorities at uh, the university? Well, it's interesting that you say that. When I think about the university in that landscape, one of the things that just stands out to me is I feel like at some level, our university is a little bit distinctive. We were founded at the deepest level 
around free expression. And it really permeates our university. And also that core curriculum. Those are foundational pieces of the university. And I think in some respects, they're, you know, I don't want to say they're completely distinctive, but there is a kind of UChicago style. (laughs) And I think many people who want to support the university, they support it because they know that that's what, what we stand for and what we do. And I think that's correct, and we should honor that. At the same time, as you say, there are many opportunity areas for us to grow in these other dimensions, and they're not just growth for its own sake, but they're growth because we're helping to achieve the role of a university in society, which is to be a partner to solve hard problems. Now, that's one of the things that universities are created to do, and I feel like that's working. So I don't feel the balance is off, but I do feel like there's been a change, a steady change, where the universities have become more involved and engaged with society around these hard problems. And that's part of why you also see universities being debated so much more in society and being a topic of almost conflict in some regards because of that. Yeah, you talk about free expression. I very much want to come on to that because Chicago, that is very much part of Chicago's ethos. And it it is a topic of great interest to all of us, given what's going on in many universities at the moment. But just very briefly on the point about funding, every university president I speak to, a large part of their job now is fundraising. We know that it's very, very important. As you do that, and as you meet benefactors and you pursue new opportunities, does that tend to drive the academic priorities of the university? Some of it obviously will be pure philanthropy, I assume, but a significant amount of it is presumably quite targeted. Well, let's take the uh, topic of climate and energy. We're thinking very, very hard about how we can contribute in that area. Many universities have outstanding programs in that. So we're going to be looking all the time at how we can present some programs where we have a distinctive approach to them. And that's going to resonate with our faculty and students because they also feel that the place is being special. So, you know, I don't want to say that there aren't issues about trying to, of course, bring the resources to the university in a practical sense. But my philosophy on this is to leverage off of the distinctive characteristics of the university. And as long as we continue to do that, I think we'll be honoring our principles, but also serving well and growing. We're going to take a break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with Paul Alavisatos, president of the University of Chicago. And we'll be talking about the culture on modern American campuses. Stay with us. This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. There's more to being a successful entrepreneur than just good business practices. What is it about an entrepreneur's childhood that helped fuel their entrepreneurial spirit? What are entrepreneurs doing to cultivate this spirit in their own children and build a legacy beyond their business? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shapea dives deeper with leading entrepreneurs on these topics and more. Find the Road to Why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Paul Alabasatos, president of the University of Chicago, about the state of American higher education. Let's talk about the freedom of expression. Again, as you say, absolutely foundational to them. I think the university's first president um, was... Harper. Yes, Harper, that's right. And then just recently, again, in the context of this, particularly in the context of this ferment that we've had in the last decade or so about safe spaces and uh, students objecting to certain types of speech, 
the university came out with a principle. Very strong Very, very strong statement, I think, in 2015. Give us an overall sense of how you see that, how you Please, see yes. the state of that, yes. because it is a topic of great interest to a lot of people. Well, thank you for describing that way. And indeed, I, you know, I've been studying Harper quite a bit because yeah. it's just so important to me. And it's astonishing how he designed the university on purpose as a response to some of the things that happened in mm. European universities, yeah. uh, wanting to ensure that government interference in what faculty did was not going to happen. And that's stayed true through the years. And indeed, as you say, in Bob Zimmer's era, great, great president of the university, my predecessor, the Chicago principles were developed. They've been adopted by over 100 universities. I believe that free expression is, is the core principle of the university, and it's a culture. And so I view myself as president as having a very important role in that, but it's also something that arises every day in each and every classroom and how students come to it and how they talk to each other. And so we have a broad set of programs that I'm initiating that will help promote the understanding of free expression when we bring people in, what we do to help them understand why it's important and how to engage in it. We try to enhance its practice as an everyday culture in the university. I have a responsibility in protecting it when something is kind of going off. And we think very hard about advancing it. For example, when there are over 90, perhaps 100 now universities that have adopted Mm. the Chicago principles, can we partner better with them or can we partner with other parts of society where free expression has become so challenged Mm. in order to help them perhaps view some of the ways in which we operate as models for them? And so all of those are very much on my mind, and you'll hear me speaking about them often. Good. You've just, interesting, I said previously you were at Cal Berkeley. Mm-hmm. How, I don't want you, I'm sure you, you know, I don't want you to criticize your previous university, but do you think that Chicago offers more of a venue for free speech, perhaps, than other universities, including possibly where you were previously? I see the level of integration of free expression into the life of the university as being very deep. And I see topics being discussed that are really hard topics our society is struggling with. I see really thoughtful, hard, deep discussion going on. Some of it comes because we have students who come from such completely different experiences. And we're trying to create that environment where they can listen to each other and hear about those things and then be engaged in the dialogue around the hard issues. And do you think students and faculty are fully invested in this idea? Because in so many universities, we do have these situations where students, and in many cases, some faculty, object to particular types of expression, political or social or cultural or whatever, and it becomes a big issue and you have these issues of whether or not people are allowed to come and speak on campus. Is the principle firmly established at universities in a way that is accepted by just about all of the members of the university? Well, all of the members is, of course, uh, a key phrase. And what really matters is what the overarching culture is. And, of course, there will be disagreements, and that's part of free expression. But let me give you an example of how we try to really create an environment that's thoughtful. We have a lecture series now, the Zell Lecture Series, that is intended to bring people to the campus to talk about the challenges of free expression. And our first speaker was Anthony Julius, a a brilliant barrister from the UK. I know, yeah. uh, Whom you know. And he was in a dialogue with one of our law school faculty, Genevieve Lankier, 
And the dialogue was around, well, what happens if somebody inside a university isn't truth-seeking, but is a provocateur? And there was a discussion around, well, what does that really mean? And how would you even know? And there were hundreds of students there, and there were faculty, and there was a huge, grand old debate about this. To me, that's the essence of a university that's not afraid to bring those topics up and say, look, let's have that debate. Of course, there are going to be people who will object to things. And it's very concerning to me. We had an example this fall where people from outside the university were trying to prevent a speaker from being able to speak. We had an instance where there was a speaker coming and there was, was a kind of organized a, social media campaign. It was in around... People years. objected to his politics. Yeah. yeah, so somebody was coming and there were people who felt like we don't want that point right. of view to be expressed right. and they were mounting a huge campaign. Right. Uh, unfortunately, and this is where we talk about the issue of protection being so important, a social media campaign veered into that range where people started to make threats of violence. And that impacted us, but we managed to have a version of the event go forward. That concerns me very much. Obviously, if people start to try to engage in that way, that's way out of the range of what's appropriate. And we have to defend free expression from that kind. We have to be determined to do that, but it's also really hard. So that's the world we live in today. And we are really working very hard to make sure that that full range of debate is taking place. Many of these people who object to speakers, to particular points of view, and who actually try to block particular points of view from being represented by particular speakers, they phrase it as the speech that they're objecting to is a form of direct personal harm. Mm -hmm. You see this all the time. You know, people say, if, you know, some right-wing politician comes and speaks, I, as a a minority or a woman or someone, that is a direct form of violence. We hear this even phrase of speech as violence. You have, do have exceptions in your principles of freedom of expression, which I think everybody understands, you know, hate yeah. speech, the kind of stuff. But how do you deal with that argument that actually speech can be violence and therefore this is something that we have to prevent? Well-meaning but wrong. If a, a student has come to the university in order to learn how to know, not what to know, and every moment, each classroom, each peer conversation could be the moment which they should be seeking where suddenly something that they thought was true turned out not to be. Mm. That's the moment of deepest education. (laughs) And you don't know when that's going to happen. And if you're not open to hearing what another person has to say, even if it's a difficult thing to hear, you're not giving the chance to actually be truth-seeking in your work. Look, we take that on Mm. and we work on it very, very hard. And it's all the way from the first day at the convocation speech. In my convocation speech this year, I spoke about the university being a kind of gift economy. Mm. And in the gift economy, the greatest gift that we can do is to listen to others and also to candidly say our own views. I have to say that's very encouraging for a lot of us to hear and the passion and the emphasis with which you say that I can see how concerned you are about it. It's not true, is it, at many universities, unfortunately, that the academic environment at many, many campuses is not like that. It is actually in many, many places they do accept this idea that speech can be violence and that certain types of speech should simply somehow be prohibited. Do you think that's a problem with higher education in the United States? I think free expression in our society is in distress. And this is a reason for us to be thinking about how the Chicago principles and other aspects of how we do our work, uh, we're ready to be partners with others in trying to work with them to see what our example looks like and also to hear from them about what they may have to say. So I am concerned about the status of free expression in society broadly, not just in academic environments, but across the whole 
landscape of communication. And we certainly see the struggles in the political world around this and in the, in the journalism world and, and so on. It's a really hard topic for us. As we know, the social media environment is changing that. But the fundamental principles of free expression, to my mind, are fundamental to universities. And we're going to be a part of trying to advance it. So you'll see us in that regard everywhere. And as a scientist, I see that as an essential piece of us being truth-seeking in the sciences as well. Again, it's great. It's extremely encouraging to hear that. Just two other very quick points that are related. One is one another concern that people have, and it's related directly to this issue of freedom of expression, is diversity of mm-hmm. opinion and diversity of thought. Yes. Uh, there's been a lot of emphasis, you know, understandably, over the last, you know, 50 years in universities in terms of diversity, racial diversity, ethnic mm-hmm. diversity, gender. I think there is a lot of concern that there's a, an increasing uniformity of thought. Obviously, I'm not talking particularly here about the sciences, where thankfully seem to be rather immune to this. But in the humanities, there and we see these surveys or faculty are asked, you know, what they're broadly how they identify politically, and overwhelmingly progressive, liberal, however you want to describe that, with an increasingly small minority of people who express themselves as conservatives. Is that something that concerns you? I will say that, for example, uh, when we think about the impact of diversity in our student body, as an example, we think in the broadest way possible. So indeed, I'm uh, proud of what the university has done to create. First of all, let me say we bring students who are really interested in ideas. No student comes to the University of Chicago by accident because they know this is a place where people really care about ideas. And that ability of us to have the kind of rich discussions that we're talking about depends on having many different points of view present. So we have indeed underrepresented groups in a larger percentage of those than in years past, which I believe has enriched the university greatly. But we also have programs that are bringing rural scholars and veterans and many other communities to our conversation. Around the topic of the faculty, look, you know, it's not for me to look at the political orientations of particular faculty, what I can say is that I believe there's a rich discussion within our faculty. I'm privileged to be able to serve as convening the council, which is our kind of senate of the faculty. And I've seen some royal and good debates inside there, and I've appreciated it. I've thought that was really wonderful to see. And I've seen examples of faculty in those conversations changing their minds about a topic. As long as that's happening, I feel like we've got a pretty sensible situation going on. That's the best that I can answer to that kind of question. Obviously, you talk there about how the student body has been diversified in all kinds of ways in the last few decades. It's a very topical issue, obviously, because we're going to get a Supreme Court decision this year on this big affirmative action uh, case, in particularly involving Harvard and others. What's the practice at the University of Chicago? And how do you see, again, a lot of people are very critical that they see that particular ethnic groups do are actually underrepresented in terms of their, if you measure it by in terms of their academic scores, Asian Americans, Asians, uh, you know, get particular attention here, others. Again, without getting into the specifics of the case, how do you at the University of Chicago view this question of affirmative action and how do you think it's going to evolve? Well, look, I don't know what the case is going to do, as you say, so premature for me to comment on how it's going to impact. But I can say this. I mentioned a little bit ago that I feel like no one comes to the University of Chicago by accident. People come because they're eager to be a part of this kind of intellectual environment. And our process is really oriented towards bringing a community of students that will foster that. And I can say that I can easily imagine there being a student, for example, who absolutely excels at test scores and grades and so on, 
but actually doesn't have that orientation. You know, you know, there are many universities that have other characteristics about what might draw students to them that don't have that same kind of ethos, if you like. And that's why the University of Chicago was actually very, very early, if not the first, that went test optional. Not because somehow we're looking at being low in rigor, I can assure you, <laughs> but because what we were really looking for in our students is people who are prepared to be engaged in this kind of learning. Yeah. And I feel like we've done a good job of creating an admissions process that really focuses on all the aspects of what students can share with us. Our message to the student that's applying to the University of Chicago is tell us why you think the University of Chicago is the right place for you. Do you have that way of wanting to be as a student? Does that make sense? And that's what we've tried to optimize around. And again, with your experience at Chicago and elsewhere, do you think affirmative action has worked, has achieved the objectives it was intended to do? I think that having a diverse student body is essential to creating the debate environment that's needed for the educational mission of learning about how to change your mind about things. Has it had the largest societal effects that were intended for it? In some respects. And you think in terms of improving access to education and improving the conditions of people of underrepresented minorities. I think, that's, it's I think it's had an impact. I will say that I also believe that, for example, we have the Odyssey program, which has been established for some time now and which has vastly expanded access financially for people. That's had a very big impact as well. I think it's going to be really interesting. We're waiting to hear what the Supreme Court says. And of course, at that time, our reflection at that time will be, how do we make sure that the principles of the University of Chicago are honored in the class that we bring so that we create the best educational environment possible. Professor Paul Alvisatos, thank you very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this week's Free Expression. Thanks very much for joining us. I'll be back next week with another in-depth conversation about a big topic that's happening in our world. In the meantime, thanks very much for joining me and goodbye. <laughs>